Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hi, and welcome to Nigerian Community Call. Tonight I'm going to play a video on semantic priming, uh, which uh, I have to thank uh, a fellow TI and YouTube, uh, uh, you know, personality of uh, Jimmy Jim N E Cricket. Uh, he is a fellow TI, pretty new, and he seems to have a pretty good grasp of the psychological uh, aspect of our targeting, and uh, hence the reason why I go on his page, and, uh, on his YouTube page, and watch his videos because you know, he has a very informative information. He also has a degree in psychology, so that may have been uh, a great help to him in terms of uncovering the psychological, uh, his his psychological target, which, you know, can't be tied into every uh, TI out there. And so it's very, very um, interesting who they're starting to target now. So I guess whether you're, you have a psychology degree or a psychiatrist degree, if you they want to make you a target, then you will uh, become a target. Okay, so um, let's see about my targeting. So over the past couple of weeks, they have been very busy with my targeting. Um, very, very aggressive in targeting me. Uh, the use of uh, police officers, uh, particularly if I'm driving, you know, again, the weekends that I go to pick up my son, I receive the heaviest targeting and the heaviest harassment from the NYPD, okay? Um, you know, multiple, if I go, um, you know, to pick him up and I'm outside, I'm waiting for him in the car, uh, they will send a police uh, squad car to basically park, you know, the opposite of where I'm parking, because the hub block is a two-way uh, street, right? And so they will park right opposite me, and they will stay there until, you know, I guess um, I leave, okay? Um, you know, and that's when I'm, you know, uh, either picking, I think it's when I'm basically I'm dropping them off. So they will, if I'm dropping them off, they will stay there until I leave. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at my red and red see if they're following me, and, and they just they just stay there, you know. But sometimes they, they do, they will follow me, okay? Um, so it's interesting, you know. So I had my, my son had his graduation this uh, week. 
And um, one of the interesting thing about it is that when I left the graduation, they had a squad car parked up um, opposite of the street lights that I had to make a left turn. And so that a squad car parked up there. Then as I was getting on the highway, there's another squad car parked up there. And as I'm entering the entrance to the Brooklyn Bridge, they basically synchronized my arrival at the bridge with a police car. And um, so it it's it was pretty, pretty interesting the way how the Jeep operates. And um oh uh, before I even go further. So uh, you know, I was talking about how when I have to go pick up my son or see my son I received my heaviest targeted from the police and they do all kind of skits. They do all kind of uh um, you know, street theater involving the police. I mean, all the resources for what? You know, I'm not a criminal, I haven't committed any crime. But yet, you know, it's because of the uh microchip that they uh implanted in me and the fact that uh that I've exposed it, right? So uh, they tried to retaliate by uh, sending me a criminal message about being arrested and blah, 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 and such, such. <clears throat> Basically trying to prevent me from uh, going to see and spend, you know, time with my children, okay, my son and my daughter. And so anyway, uh, the day of my son's graduation, I had to stop by the house to get um excuse me I had to uh, just mute. My daughter's up and she just refused to go to sleep. But anyway, as I was saying, um, so the day of my son's graduation, I had to stop by the house and I got on my block and I saw all these police officers there and they're watching this particular house across the street. And I'm like, okay, well, look, like they've been there for a while, so they're just standing there with their hands folded, waiting. And so, anyway, parked the car, went inside. I had to come back out to move the car. Came back out to move the car. There were even more police officers there. Now, uh, I had to go back inside again. All right? Uh, I had to get my my five-year-old who came with me to the graduation. So, anyway, on the... When me and him left the house, uh, then... I saw all the cops, they all started to scramble. You know, they're like, I still like little cockroaches, right? Well, I was trying to lie, then they all started to scramble. So they started to scramble. I get in the car, one of the officers walked towards uh, the car and was talking to a uh, gentleman. But of course, it's all scripted, right? Because as soon
soon as I was leaving to go to my son's graduation, then they started the whole activity, right? So all this time, they're standing there, not doing nothing, watching this house, okay? But the minute I get out the house to leave, remember, I, I came out the house uh, uh, one time before to move the car across the street, right? They were still standing there. But the next time that I came out to uh, go on my way to the graduation, they all started to scramble, all started to scramble. Now, as I'm driving, okay, they have this guy, you know, there was like six or seven officers surrounding this guy on the ground. Now, let me give you that a little bit of history, okay? Earlier on in my targeting, right, I used, they always used to make these arrests in front of me. It happened, it was happening so frequently. Before I became, and I live in a bad neighborhood. I do not live in a bad neighborhood. Now, before I became a target, you know, I've never seen so many people get arrested in front of me as after I get a, uh, after I became a target. And so, I guess as a target, there is no such thing as coincidence. Okay, everything is planned. So they will create these false arrests. Okay, to try to send you some sort of subliminal message about you being arrested. So on that particular day, which was Thursday, yes, uh, not Thursday, sorry, uh, Tuesday, which was yesterday. Okay, today is um, uh, actually two days ago. So yesterday was uh, Wednesday. So on Tuesday, they did all of that. Okay, all of that. And I guess they were trying to scare me or prevent me, like I said, because they were trying to prevent me from going to see or pick up my son, right? Because I, I get to see him every other weekend. So I only see him every other weekend, and every time that, that the weekend comes, at uh, that particular uh, time, which I have to go see him, I get attacked ferociously uh, with, by the police, with the harassment by the police, the following of the police car. And so when what they started to do, instead of them following me, they would basically drive in front of me. So they would, like, once I get into Brooklyn, you know, they would, like, the incident with the police officer on the Brooklyn Bridge, like I said, you know, uh, conversion into that lane, uh, almost simultaneously, you know, it's it's what we call the synchronization, right, through the tracking. And so immediately, right, like I said, he started to follow me and, you know, he's flashing his lights, right? But he's flashing his lights, okay, with no, he's no fire, you know, there's no fire, you hear no sound, but the lights are flashing and he's flashing and the only color of the lights that you can see flashing is the color red. So they, again, this all ties into how they use colors to uh, affect your emotional state. Um, so, you know, he's had a light flashing. And then, um, so anyway, uh, drove up, you know, got into Brooklyn. As soon as we got into, crossed the bridge and got into Brooklyn, he starts flashing his blue and red light. So uh, anyway, driving, got to my destination, and got upstairs, and the sirens just went off. I mean, the, multi, the the noise campaign was, like I said, it's just ridiculous with these people, all right? These people have uh, nothing better to do. They're criminals. And, um, you know, and I just have to expose it. You know, that's what I have to do. You know, these are, this is a coercive psychological mind control program, right? And that's just one aspect. Okay, and they use this psychological 
mind control, progressive mind control program to silence you. If they're not talking about the chip, the microchip, the experimentation, the remote neural monitoring, the new technology you talk about, the, you know, uh, these um, technology that they're researching, you know, reading people's minds, people's thoughts, um, that's, that sort of thing. And so the psychological game is, like I said, it's just it's a way of them of the sending you psychological threats, uh, destroying your your finances, destroying your relationships, uh, destroying your mindset uh, because you uh, you know refuse to become silent for the atrocity or for the torture that's being committed against you. Okay, and so this is that's what they do. You know, like I go to the gym and work out, and they don't want me to go to the gym and work out. What the reason why? Because working out makes you feel better. Okay. Not only does it make you feel better, but you become fit, right? Physically, you become uh, stronger, right? Mentally, you become stronger too, because when you're working out, you have more focus, right? And say, so they don't want that. They don't want that, you know, because they want you all fragile and feeble so, so they can push you around, okay? And which is not going to happen in my case, in my situation. Okay, uh, you may be able to dehumanize me in the eyes of, you know, society, but you will not uh, dehumanize me in, in my eyes. Okay, and so that's another thing. Secondly, also, uh, they've been, you know, conditioning my children to uh, target me. Okay, and uh, you know they use primers, a technique called primers. Okay, and so the video I'm gonna play tonight discuss this. Discuss this is how I realized how that they what they do to my kids to, to target me, and it says that you know infants as young as uh, 18 months old, okay, can be primed. I mean, they can be conditioned, okay, to either help or harass, you know, someone, okay. And so this video is called uh, Mind Control Through Semantic Priming, Unconscious Behavioral Guidance, okay? This comes from the Yale University Department of Psychology, right? Um, very, very important information that um, we should all listen to and we should all share, okay? And again, this comes from Jim and E. Cricket, who is a targeted individual, very, very uh, intelligent guy. And, um, you know, I think he has a pretty good handle in terms of uh, recognizing and explaining what has been going on what has been done to him and to others like him, including myself. Okay, so without further ado, I am going to play uh, the video. Okay? Please excuse any... Uh, noise you may hear in the background. I do apologize for that. Okay. Um, Dr. Barge is um, 
received his uh, BA degree from the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana and his uh, MA and PhD in psychology from the University of Michigan, where he worked with Bob Science. Um, after graduation, he took faculty position at NYU and stayed there until 2003 when he moved to Yale. Uh, Dr. Barge's research focuses on unconscious mechanisms that underlie social perception, evaluation, and preferences, and motivation and goal pursuit in, uh-oh, and what did I do there? Let's see. You know, you really need to see this picture, right, while I'm talking, so there we go. Um, okay, um, uh, motivation and goal pursuit in realistic and complex social environments. Uh, based on his experimental work, also Dr. Barge has written extensively on the concept of uh, free will and the purpose of consciousness itself. Uh, Dr. Barge is a recipient of numerous honors and awards, including an early career award from the American Psychological Association, the Don Campbell Award for Distinguished Scientific Contributions from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, the uh, Scientific Impact Award from the Society of Experimental Social Psychology, the Annual Research Prize from the Max Planck Society, among others. In addition, Dr. Barge was a Guggenheim Fellow and a Fellow at the Center for Advanced Studies in Behavioral Science. We're very fortunate to have him here with us today. Uh, the title of his talk is Unconscious, Be Unconscious Behavioral Guidance Systems. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Barge today. I think my computer was mercifully trying to protect you. I've seen my photograph up there for so long. So, well, these new, very, very smart computers. It's uh, senses what the audience wants. Let's see. Here we go. Here we go from the beginning, please. Okay. All right. Now, uh, the last thing someone who's been around as long as uh, I have wants to do would want to do would be to tell you all the research from all the long time ago and all the old stuff from the 80s and 90s and all that. What, what a person like me wants to do is to get right to what I'm doing now and to tell you what's going on in our lab now because it's something I'm excited about, interested in, where my head is at. Um, so what I think I'm going to do is the following. And I'll, to, to live up to the theme of the, of the talk, which I, the whole talk will, will be consistent with uh, the, the, the lecture series this year, um, is to give you a little bit of background, I'll sketch out some background, but then I'll use the more modern research as examples of all of this. And so it really will fit um, with this idea of unconscious behavioral guidance systems, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on the old stuff. Uh, so essentially what we've got here are, uh, uh, in social cognition, social psychology, a, a long history of research on priming, priming uh, referring to the passive activation of mental representations, and uh, uh, this is not merely a descriptive uh, slide. This actually uh, corresponds to uh, dissociations in different uh, systems that have different operating characteristics when they're primed. But you basically get external environmental priming effects, uh, aspects of the environment, features of the environment that are perceived, activating and, and doing, uh, doing their thing in these different systems, causing evaluations of everything as either good or bad, uh, activating uh, motivations of, uh, tied to situations and, uh, and perhaps uh, evolutionary evolved innate motivations. And also, uh, we also perceive what everybody else is doing. Uh, and so uh, there are effects of that perception. Uh, for example, in social psychology and social cognition, there's a whole lot of research on stereotyping. Uh, this is uh, definitely an automatic effect of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of 
superficial features of a person, um, uh, skin color, gender, easily perceived features of a person that activate representations about that group and what that group is like. That happens, all this stuff from the left, uh, these things happen without conscious intention and without uh, necessarily conscious awareness that these things are going on. Um, what has happened in the, uh, in the uh, uh, 20 years or so since that research is that all of these different uh, uh, priming effects uh, activating these systems have been found to proceed on without conscious guidance or, or intention or, or uh, the necessity of any conscious intention or, or awareness to affect behavior, to directly affect behavior. So that the entire sequence from the outside environment to behavioral and other higher mental processes uh, is something that's not, the consciousness is not needed for. It can all proceed without conscious intention and without conscious awareness. Uh, as you'll see later on, uh, there's, um, that's an interesting feature because that was not predicted and that was not known from the beginning that this would happen, uh, that these different effects on judgment and on uh, goal setting and on perception would then all directly affect behavior. But each of them, for different reasons, do affect behavior directly. And that suggests uh, that there is something evolved and, and natural uh, and, and adaptation involved here with priming effects. Uh, because they would have to affect behavior for them to be something that would guide adaptive responses prior to the advent of, of consciousness, which was a relatively late evolutionary development. So the fact that these, these all go and affect behavior is a signal that there is some basic element of the system as a default system to guide behavior and to guide responses to, back to the environment without the necessity of consciousness. So this is like a default system now. Now we have consciousness. Now we have another root to these systems. But this was the original. This was the old one. Uh, and I'll make an argument later that a lot of the effects that are being shown today are actually acceptations or, or scaffolding built on these original uh, hardwired or innate kinds of structures um, that, that consciousness makes use of those, but they preexisted, uh, they existed before consciousness. So the idea of unconscious behavioral guidance systems is that we have a system here that keeps us tied to the present. It keeps suggesting to us impulses to the correct or the appropriate or at least the safest kinds of behaviors we can enact in an environment, which frees the conscious mind to do what it does best, which is, go into, which is time travel, which is go into the past, remember the past, or to plan and set agendas for the future. Now, this is a present-oriented system, and it keeps us tied to the present in a very, fairly adaptive way, but it frees the conscious mind to time travel. Otherwise, if you're remembering the past or thinking about the future, you get eaten by your Missouri tiger right, right then and there, and your mind's not going to be aware of it. You've got to have some, some feature, uh, some system tying you to the present to allow that time travel to happen. So it's a mutually supportive and complementary system, uh, but that's the basic idea of unconscious behavioral guidance systems. The breakthrough research is showing that each of those separate kinds of systems uh, does directly flow on and affect behavior, but in different, in different ways with different mechanisms, so I'll try to sketch. So the last part of the talk, I'd like to feature the newer research that's been going on. This is, in the, this is called embodiment research, or it's called a variety of different things. Uh, we like to call it physical priming of, of psychological states. This is not exactly the same as when people talk about embodied emotion or simulations uh, or, or the storage of bodily uh, experiences, uh, sensations in the memory representation of events. It's not really embodiment, but certainly in harmony of uh, the general idea of embodiment. And I'll use the research here for, as examples, and this is the more uh, research that's coming out of our lab like the last 10 years. So going back to the unconscious behavioral guidance system idea, the first kinds of uh, effects were shown uh, going back to Russ Fazio and the automatic attitude activation research in the 1980s in social cognition. Uh, essentially, uh, anything you encounter activates uh, attitudes, activates feelings and affects associated with it, uh, very part harmonious with the somatic marker hypothesis that you have these kind of affective reactions 
uh, and those are those are relatively uh, fast, immediate, and also you don't need to uh, appraise or try to evaluate things. They happen by themselves. Uh, coding of uh, classifying of, of, ex of experiences or objects, whatever, that's either good or bad. It's fairly crude, uh, but that's the uh, that's the first part. Um, and the next part is that it turns out that each of uh, these evaluations do directly affect behavioral predispositions to act towards the object. Uh, muscular, behavioral, uh, arm and leg and so forth, bodily movement. Uh, and again, this all happens within, say, 200 milliseconds of exposure to the stimulus. Okay, so, you know, we, we have immediate reactions to things. This is what my advisor, Bob Zions, was preaching back in the you know, late 70s, early 80s, that we have affect without cognition. We have affect without having to deliberate and think about what we do all the time. We immediately see this, you know, baby polar bear, and we go, oh, our cute little polar bear. We like it. We don't have to think about why. I tell them, do I like it? Well, it has soft fur, and it has a pleasant expression. It looks cute. Hmm, I like it. It's not like that at all. Uh, so you have this immediate reaction. Uh, and that makes sense in the sense in the case of uh, cute little polar bears. Uh, and so the, the central kind of studies that were done with the value of priming were sequential priming, a la Posner and Snyder, on uh, this kind of a paradigm. And this was Les Fazio's innovation to, to apply uh, sequential priming to affective priming. It turns out that if you put uh, uh, something that's good as a prime, uh, very shortly thereafter, something else. If it shares valence, they have the same valence, you're going to be faster to respond. And not just to respond good or bad to evaluate it, but also to pronounce the target, to to lots of different, say, if the target is a word or non-word, it doesn't matter. Any response to the target is facilitated if the prime uh, that precedes it, even though they're unrelated semantically otherwise, uh, shares valence. And you're slower if they, if they don't. Uh, the, the original research limited this effect to very strong attitudes, but uh, Kimberly Duckworth, Shelley Chaikin, and I, and others uh, have been showing for some time that you actually get this effect for everything, even weak attitudes like for tuna. Uh, it's not just for those cute little polar bears. And you even get it for novel attitude objects like abstract art, non-representational abstract art. It's not a picture of something. It's, it's non-representational. You can actually get the same uh, immediate evaluation effect for these uh, for these abstract uh, uh, things that people have never seen before. In other words, for novel stimuli. So this system is there to to evaluate our experiences, good or bad, and and, and give us the appropriate uh, uh, response to make back, uh, as shown by the next uh, study, uh, which shows that the effect really isn't a direct effect on behavior as much as it's mediated by a motivational approach or avoidance motivational uh, state that is triggered by the evaluation. So that good uh, evaluations trigger an approach uh, orientation or approach behavioral response, and bad things uh, trigger immediately as an avoidance or withdrawal response. And that is how the evaluative system affects uh, behavior in this automatic, non-conscious way. So for example, if you have people, now in this study by Mark Shannon, myself published in 1999, what we had people do was to have a lever, and on the computer screen in front of them were just names of, of different kinds of attitude objects, both good and bad. And they came on at random times. The subject's task, participant's task, was just to move the lever, either to push it on half the trials, pull it on half the trials, counterbalance, uh, to knock this word off the screen. So all they were doing was playing like a, a crude little video game and, and uh, reaction time almost and knocking things off the screen. But it turns out when the name of the attitude object, when, when the attitude object on the screen uh, was positive, people were faster to pull it towards them using the flexor muscles, uh, which are associated with John Cacioppo's research, for example, with approach motivations, like you're bringing the apple to you. Uh, and they were faster to uh, uh, pull when something was positive, slower when something was negative. And they were also, the converse, they were faster to push the lever if it was something negative and not when it was something positive. And that kind of effect has been replicated many times. 
And this is, again, within 200 milliseconds after exposure. And they weren't trying to evaluate. They were just trying to knock these things off the screen. So what you see is you have an immediate good or bad classification of experience. This effect also happens with novel objects. Uh, if you get another group of people to norm them as good or bad and then have uh, naive uh, people who have never been exposed to them see these, you get the same, you get the same effect with novel stimuli too. So even with things we've never seen before, we very adaptively are ready to do the approach avoidance. It's crude, but it's default. It's a basic default. I don't know anything else to do, but I, you know, just as a crude first pass, here's what you'd want to do here. You want to approach or you want to avoid. So that's evaluation, uh, and it goes mediated by that route. Uh, perception, which is uh, we're going to spend the most time on later. Uh, this has uh, been known for some time. We know, for example, the flocks of birds and herds of antelope and schools of fish have incredible synchrony of movement. Uh, they can all move as one as one unit. Well, they're not like looking around and saying, hey, buddy bird over there is going that way. I think I'll follow buddy bird. Or, you know, a, a, a Sammy fish is going the other way. Um, they're not thinking about this and not, not deciding to move one way or the other. But by merely perceiving what the others in their group are doing, they do the same thing. So it's a direct link between perception and action. Perceiving what others do in their group creates a tendency in themselves to do the same thing. Now, you may have heard of this uh, in, other, in other domains, uh, for example, mirror neurons. Uh, but uh, the idea here is that, well, maybe people are the same way. Uh, and, you know, there's some evidence that uh, even little guys, you know, imitate uh, the big guys around them. And, you know, this is natural for kids because they're soaking up what the right thing to do is. They don't know the norm. They don't know what's right or wrong and safe and unsafe yet. And so they're really looking at the big people to get cues about what to do and soaking those up. So just like these guys, these guys, you know, are also doing the same kind of thing. So you have this principle lots, uh, lots of places in psychology. William James called it the principle of ideomotor action for James. It was conscious thought, however. Thinking about doing something makes it more likely you'll do it, just merely thinking about it. We have a lot of, uh, you know, history of research. Uh, the Gestaltist, Kohler, Kafka, others, you know, in the 20s. Uh, mimicry imitation, you've got uh, the, the work uh, more recently, um, uh, Meltzoff and other people, uh, showing uh, uh, imitation even in newborn infants, uh, right off the bat of crying of other infants, uh, makes them more likely to cry. You've got Giacomo Rizzolatti and, uh, and uh, other his colleagues, uh, more recent research on mirror neurons and how that supports theory of mind. Essentially, that witnessing, uh, this is in monkeys as well as people, but witnessing a behavior in a conspecific, uh, or actually in the case of the monkey research, a human experimenter, act actually activates the same tendency to do the same thing yourself. In other words, it activates areas of the premotor cortex, staging areas for, for actually behaving yourself. And so obviously that's a support for the kind of finding uh, that I'm going to talk about uh, in the more social psychological domain. Uh, if you have people interact with each other on a task where they're working on a, something on a table and talking about it, but not really looking at each other too much and, and just really working on the same task on a table, we can set that up so a confederate is playing the role of the other participant in that paradigm. And the confederate is either rubbing uh, her face or, or, in another version, shaking her foot. The actual participant uh, uh, does this task with one and then the other in a counterbalanced order. And you find when they're with the face-rubbing uh, confederate, they're rubbing their own face much more. And when they're with the foot-shaking confederate, they stop rubbing their face so much and they start shaking their foot a lot more. And now people, when, when you tell them about this in these experiments, usually don't believe you that this is not what they were doing. And then like often our participants ask to see the videotape of themselves doing it, and we could you know, show it to them, and they could see. Uh, this is something we all do, uh, not just participants in psychology experiments, um, and I do it too, and everybody does it. It's a very natural tendency because of perception in, uh, activating the tendency of the, the representations to do the same thing yourself. 
It's a very natural social phenomenon in lots of different animals. And in social psychology, we know, however, that uh, perception is not just merely perceiving what's going on right now in the environment, not just physical information about, you know, shake, uh, foot shaking or face rubbing, but we, all, we often go beyond the information given in our perception. So, for example, when we perceive a member of, of, of minority groups or, or certain groups in society, we stereotype them. We have content added to uh, what's, what's out there in the environment. But assumptions and expectations based on group membership, for example, that's going beyond the information given in Jerome Bruner's famous phrase. Uh, so, well, what that suggests is that maybe uh, it's not just uh, physical uh, you know, perception of, of what's going on right now in the environment that causes these effects on behavior, but also trait concepts and stereotypes if activated in the course, automatically in the course of uh, social perception, they too would proceed on and affect your own behavior. Uh, now, it's not out there, but it's activated in here, and that might have the same effect. So we can extend uh, these uh, perception behavior effects to stereotypes and trait concepts. For example, the first one we picked on was the, was the uh, elderly stereotype. Uh, this is an actual street sign from London, uh, England. Um, and um, I'm not sure, but I'm hoping there's not like 20 points or something like underneath this. You know, like uh, the idea here is to watch out and be careful. Uh, these uh, old people are, old, are bent over and slow and walking with canes. Um, it's an actual street sign. Um, and, and so the stereotype of, old peop of older people or elderly people as being physically slow and weak uh, is certainly a very strong uh, stereotype uh, in lots of societies. Uh, so what we first did was to uh, prime the elderly stereotype, uh, activate it with aspects of it like Florida, bingo, oranges, but also gray and conservative and things like that in what's called a scrambled sentence test, and I'll show you that later, but verbally. Uh, and these were 19, 18, 19-year-old 19 NYU students. They weren't older people. Uh, and we did that, and then we just measured. Now, the, the key thing about our priming with, with activating the concept is we did not have anything in our primes having to do with slowness or weakness. And we're trying to show people go beyond the information we present them. We didn't prime slowness or weakness. We just primed the idea of elderly people. But because the stereotype contains it, we assumed slowness and weakness would be active, and that would cause the person to be slow or weak. And that's what we found. So what you, you get in both of these uh, experiments is the, the people primed with the elderly stereotype, and of course I use gray bars here, um, are, are actually walking down the hall, leaving the experiment more slowly than people who are in the, in the control condition who are not primed with the elderly stereotype. Now, that's a 996 finding since and there's been dozens, if not hundreds, of demonstrations of stereotype priming effects, and you get them for you know, so many different things uh, I, I don't want to spend too much time, but uh, for example, activating the nurse, uh, the, a stereotype of a nurse uh, makes people more helpful afterwards. Uh, activating the, the stereotype of a politician causes people to be, be more verbose. They talk longer and write longer after you prime the idea of a stereotype. Um, if you uh, activate the idea of uh, or prime people with German shepherds, they're more loyal to their group in, in group, uh, out group kinds of experiments afterwards. Uh, and uh, the first one by Dijksterhaus and Van Snippenberg uh, up there in the upper left, if you prime the idea of professor, uh, people do better on trivial pursuit questions. Except sports. The, the, hooligans, the hooligans over there in the upper right do better on the sports questions, but they do worse on everything else. Now, they're not hooligans. They're not anything. These are just people like you and me. But the idea has been activated of a soccer hooligan studied in Holland or professor or so forth. So these are people like you and me, and this is what happens when these concepts are activated. So it's a pretty ubiquitous effect and pretty pervasive effect. You don't get it just with aspects of people or types of people. You get it with aspects of situations. For example, contextual cues, uh, a hippie-type backpack, studied on Sanford, um, 
uh, in, a, in a room causes people to be more cooperative in a prisoner's dilemma game afterwards. Study Aaron Kay and uh, Lee Roth and I did, and Kristen Wheeler a long time ago. Uh, and if it was a briefcase uh, in the same place against the door of the room, people are more competitive in a prisoner's dilemma game. And the mere object of here's my backpack back here, but you know, a backpack or a briefcase the do uh, by the door is all it takes to produce these significant differences in cooperation or competition. Uh, it has health, these, these effects have health implications. Uh, uh, Jennifer Harris, who's now working with Kelly Brownell at the West Center of uh, Research on Obesity and Eating Disorders at Yale. She was a, a graduate student in my lab. And we started looking at the effects of television ads. These are cues, repetitive cues uh, in TV ads and how that would directly affect a person's eating behavior. So we had people watch a five-minute comedy show if that had naturally in it food ads or not. We actually looked at healthy versus unhealthy types of food, like Cashy versus McDonald's. Uh, that didn't make any difference, interestingly. Uh, but they were food ads or not. And then we had a bowl of goldfish crackers and a water thing for them to, while they're watching, just, you know, if they wanted any. They didn't tell them to eat, but just had that there for them. We just looked to see how much they ate. These were 8-year-old kids and college students and 40- or 50-year-old adults in these various studies. And the presence of the food ads in the clip increased the consumption of, of uh, goldfish crackers by 45%. So... You know, my message to people is this. Um, uh, these guys in these ads, they know what they're doing. And you think that what they're doing is making so you remember the product names. You go to the store and you're buying laundry detergent and you, how many million ads you've seen for Sudzo soap. And so you go, oh, Sudzo, I want to buy Sudzo. That's not what they're doing with these ads. They're trying to create, they're trying to affect your consumption at home while you're watching these ads so that you'll have to buy more tomorrow. They're trying to affect your consumption now, so you need more tomorrow of all these different things for selling. So, because they know they can do it. And so, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, uh, let's not all be naive as a field to think that we're the only ones doing this kind of research, and so we're, you know, giving the game away to advertisers. No, they have huge amounts of money for research and development, and 60-something billion dollars is spent on advertising in, uh, worldwide, maybe it's just the U.S., each year. And they're not spending that money for nothing. They're spending that money because it works, and it does work. And um, I think they know this already. Uh, we, we've been demonstrating it because uh, we suspect that's what they're up to. That's a real-world application of the idea of priming. Uh, people who are trying to lose weight or whatever are, are not uh, helped by this at all. Uh, but, you know, what are you going to do? Food ads. But it's the way they do the ads is uh, causing this additional consumption. You get the same thing with smoking, and, and I hate to say it, you get the same thing with non-smoking, anti-smoking ads because they're full of cues to smoking. They're talking about the word smoking. They're, they're showing cigarettes. They're showing cues to smoking. We've already done that study. Anti-smoking, non-smoking ads increases smoking in participants. We give them a chance to have a break and come back to the rest of the experiment. Break is a code word, as many of you may know, for having a smoke if you uh, haven't had one and you're a smoker. And we let them go, they go outside and they smoke. And we can actually see them from our lab um, window in the courtyard doing that. Priming effects, contextual priming effects who you vote for or what you vote for. It affects outcomes of election. This is a, a Jonah Berger study at Stanford, uh, uh, now he's at Wharton School. But what they showed was that, uh, I think this was done with Christian Wheeler, this is a great paper. Um, if you vote in a school, you're more likely to vote for school-related issues like bond issues. If your precinct happens to be in a school, I'm not, you know, it, it just happens your voting booth is in a school, like a gym. Or in many places uh, in the South uh, uh, and maybe other parts of the country, people vote in churches. And if you vote in a church, people who vote in church are more, are more likely to vote in line with religious and church positions. You know that by looking at the precincts. And you can look at the actual vote. It's public record. You can see at these different precincts, was it at a school, was it at a church, and how people voted, even in the same community, 
you get these kinds of differences. So timing is not just laboratory little uh, tricks. This is something that happens out there and really affects people in important real-world decisions. Uh, and there's a wonderful uh, series of papers on the broken windows theory, which came out in science, science. It's a bunch of Dutch uh, researchers. Uh, and this is a really wonderful paper uh, showing that uh, cues to disorder or cues to graffiti or cues to uh, vandalism, that kind of thing, uh, here are the two conditions. Uh, and this is actually, these aren't, these aren't the stimuli. These are the actual scenes where they, the settings in the actual environment in Holland where they collected the data. If, for example, there's no graffiti on the wall, now what they did was they put little flyers on, on all the bikes. You see those pieces of paper that the experimenters put those on there, like little ads or something, or announcements of a, a dance or a concert. And they just wanted to see how many people took it and dumped it on the ground. And if there was no graffiti there, very few people uh, took those things and dumped them on the ground. If there was graffiti on the wall, significantly more people took those things and dumped them on the ground. And that's the whole idea behind broken windows theory is that uh, these cues we're seeing out there are setting norms. They're telling us, just like that little kid following the two adults, what is the right thing or appropriate or okay thing to do here or not? And we're very sensitive to what other people do. They have this in a variety of different uh, demonstrations. Uh, so, so, you know, priming effects or what, what's going on, how you perceive how other people are behaving in your world is a very strong influence on what you do yourself. And it has social implications. Now, the motivational uh, system idea is basically that you have to start with the idea that goals and, and motivations can be represented or represented. They, they correspond to cognitive representations. Believe it or not, this is a relatively new idea. Uh, it's sort of a, a merging of motivational and cognitive science, but it's not that, that uh, long ago that uh, that was not done. Uh, if that's true, if motivations and goals correspond to representations, they should be able to be primed just like everything else is uh, that we've been talking about. That is, they be, could be activated by environmental features that are relevant or associated with them. If those motivations are triggered, they can guide behavior uh, over the long term, not just a single behavioral response, but guiding behavior over longer periods of time. That's if uh, motivations or goals can be primed, if they correspond to representation. Got a lot of research, uh, uh, goal systems theory, uh, R.E.A. Kruglansky and colleagues, Ayelet Fischbach in Chicago, uh, our lab too, uh, Goldwitzer's lab, lots of people, arts and Custers in Holland, uh, looking at these unconscious motivational effects. There was a nice piece by arts and, uh, arts and Custers in Science in 2010, a big review piece on the unconscious will, that reviews a lot of this evidence. So it's, it's, uh, it's gaining some status, uh, at least as a viable um, model of unconscious motivation. Uh, but it certainly corresponds to uh, the other kinds of uh, findings we're talking about. There's different kinds of unconscious goal pursuit findings that we've uh, been associated with in our lab. Uh, first of all, you can, you can prime uh, a different effects of memorization and, and uh, impression formation. Uh, just like you tell people to memorize something or you tell people to uh, form an impression with explicit instructions, you get different effects. There's actually differences between those conditions on later memory for information. If you instead prime them with the idea of impression formation or memorization, but don't but give everybody the same vanilla, everybody in the experiment the same vanilla instructions, please read these. We'll ask you questions later, just something generic. You get the same differences as when you tell them, tell them explicitly to do these different tasks. Uh, so it doesn't, you don't have to use even uh, explicit conscious instructions, just priming. You replicate the past research on that, on that difference. Uh, for example, a scrambled sentence test that might prime impression formation might look like this, except that in the actual study there's 30 items and there's, there's nothing highlighted in orange. That's just for, I'm sorry, nothing highlighted anyway. On my screen it is, but if it's not highlighted, it's great. That's what the, the actual participant sees. Um, but this is, uh, it, this is uh, inducing this kind of uh, uh, processing in a context of a language test so no one catches on that what they do here is affecting anything they do later. 
This is essentially what a priming study is. Uh, you can actually you can, uh, increase uh, performance on tasks by priming achievement or priming the idea of high performance. And Bill Witzer and I have a lot of studies on that now, that people's performance on a variety of tasks uh, is better if you prime the idea of achievement um, in various ways. And uh, interpersonal goals like cooperation, competition, and so forth can also be, uh, can also be primed. Uh, giving you that one example, the briefcase and the, and the backpack can prime cooperation versus competition in people. Um, the, having them merely think uh, in a very incidental way about close people in their lives, like their parents, uh, their siblings, their um, uh, spouses, their children, whatever, uh, activates the goals that people have that are associated with that person. So, for example, we selected NYU students who had said earlier in the semester that uh, what they, their, their important goal with their mother and father is to make them proud. 55% uh, said that. The other 45% did not say that. Um, they have other goals with their parents, make them happy, help them, whatever, but not make them proud. But the people who uh, have the goal of making their mom proud, if you just merely have them think, uh, report like what's their mother's neighborhood look like or draw a map of the neighborhood or tell me what your mom does on a Saturday afternoon, you get that goal activated and they score higher, they achieve more, uh, have higher scores on tests afterwards. So the incidental exposure reminders of people in our life activate the representation we have of them but that also contains within it things like goals and motives we pursue when with them and can cause uh, you to behave as if they were physically present when they're not. In other words, they're psychologically present, but they're not physically present. And so goals can be associated with close relationships. Uh, and this is uh, a, a study uh, that Grania Fitzsimmons and I did and published a while ago. Uh, this is a longer one about competition cooperation, but it gets into a point that's going to lead into the, <laughs> the rest of the talk, which is time is rapidly flying away. Um, so, so here what we do is we uh, give people a, a resource commons dilemma where they're a fishing company and there's another fishing company on the other side. Uh, they're competing against that company. At the same time, they don't want to overfish because if they take too many fish out, they kill the lake. There's no fish for anybody. So it's a classic uh, commons dilemma where you want to do the right thing and, and make a profit for yourself. But at the same time, if you overdo it, you, you kill the goose that's laying the golden eggs. And you don't want to do that. So you have to cooperate a little bit. So we tell them about that and we say on each trial you're going to win, you're going to catch a certain number of fish and you, you want to catch as many as possible, but you don't want to kill the lake and take all the fish out. So you might want to put some fish back and they were told for every fish they put back they get you know, more fish the next time uh, to repopulate the lake. So you've got competition and cooperation going on. In the design we, we compare explicit timing of cooperation or, or no cooperation. We tell them it's very important to cooperate but we don't tell them that. And we prime over here, I think this was done subliminally actually, cooperation or not. So you have a, 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 in the same design the priming or unconscious activation of the goal and you have the conscious activation of the goal. And it turns out, you can see from the data, the, more, the higher the number, the more they cooperate. The more fish they put back in out of a total of maximum 75. And you see that you get significantly greater cooperation when they're told to do it, right? But you also get the main effect of the priming so that um, unconscious uh, goal to cooperate also increases uh, uh, cooperation compared to a control condition, and the two add together. You get the most cooperation when you have both, you get the least cooperation when you have. So you see basically the same outcome is being produced by telling people to do something versus priming it and not telling them to do it explicitly. You get the same effect. Now, interestingly, what happens afterwards if you ask people how cooperative had, were you? How, how uh, strongly did you intend to cooperate during the task? And so you get a rating of how much they had meant to or tried to cooperate. And in the explicit condition, those actually correlate with what they actually did at a moderate level. So significant correlations between their subsequent self-reports of what they had just done, right after they had just done it, with, what, with their behavior. 
some correspondence. The more people cooperated, the more they said they cooperated. Except you don't get that in the priming condition. You get zero correlations, which means that the only way you go in and, and have an accurate idea of what you had just done is if you go in with that intention. You go in knowing this is what your intention is. If you're induced to do it, even though you do it, later on you, you can't even report accurately that you had just done it. So our argument is that these motivations not only are activated outside of awareness, but they, they then operate and guide behavior over time without your awareness of what you're doing. And this is the best evidence we have uh, so far of that. Now, unconscious motivational effects show the classic Lewinian, Kurt Lewin's uh, classic uh, concept of, 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 of signature states of a motivation, signatures of a motivational state. Uh, even though people don't know that they're pursuing these goals, they still persist at it in the face of obstacles, they still resume the task, it's interrupted uh, if, if they have the goal to complete it and then will complete it, as opposed to people who are not motivated uh, to complete the task. And there's also consequences for what they do afterwards. So for example, if you prime people with achievement uh, and then interrupt, uh, in, this, in this case we told them that uh, they had to stop when they heard a stop signal coming over an intercom, and, but there was no one present in the room. Uh, they heard the stop signal, but they kept working, trying to find as many letters in this series of Scrabble tiles as they could. Uh, in the achievement condition, 50-something percent continued after they were told to stop. In other words, stopping is an obstacle to get the highest score possible in this wonderful psychology experiment, and they really care so much that they keep writing down words for three minutes afterwards, looking at the door all the time to make sure they don't get caught doing it. This is just a psychology experiment. This isn't the SAT. Okay, and the neutral condition, yeah, they could care less. In fact, we, have a, we ran them simultaneously, and we have one videotape, uh, where the, the person in neutral condition actually puts down the pencil and is, has fallen asleep by the time the other person is still working writing down words. Uh, people will resume a task uh, that they, even though it's boring, if they have the achievement motive uh, primed, uh, this is a boring word search task, but the task that they can switch to if they want to is uh, uh, rating how funny these various Gary Larson far side cartoons are. Everyone prefers that wildly to the boring task. And yet if you have this motive operating, again, unconsciously, you'll return, you'll choose to return and finish the boring task and, and eschew the, uh, the more fun task. And obviously people in the neutral condition don't. So you get the same qualities of motivational states as you do with conscious impression formation. And I'll go through this relatively quickly. But essentially you also get the same kind of mood effects. Um, if you succeeded or failed at a task, at a goal you don't even know you have. This is punished for trans dissertation at NYU. Uh, priming people, but then giving them a, a sort of filler task where they, it's either impossible to do or easy to do, but they're told it's filler. But if they succeed on the easy version, they, are, uh, they show great mood effects. Uh, that if it was easy, they're in a great mood. If it was difficult, they're in a, a poor mood, even though this was not going to be collected and it's not that important. In uh, the nine prime condition, they weren't affected at all by whether they had done the easy or the difficult task. Uh, and you get the same effect for um, if they pursue this in the future, motivational strength. So very unconscious weeding out of things you can do in a, in a uh, augmentation or increase in strength of things you can do without even realizing you have the goal in the first place. So you get all the effects, all the effects of uh, conscious motivation, but you do it without the person uh, having the motivation consciously. So now, you, you're faced with a situation where you get the same outcomes, you get the same phenomenal qualities, the same, I didn't put this up here, but you've got now emerging a neuroscience research showing that you get the same brain regions activated um, with incentives if they're aware versus not aware of the incentive. You get the same behavioral effects same brain regions activated, but with differences in people being aware versus not aware of the incentives slashed right before the trial. It's a hand grip exertion exercise. This is Siglione and Chris Fritz's work at the University of College of London. Uh, so you get the same processing stages. Everything is the same, and that 
begs the question, how come? Is it that we have these conscious goals and all the properties get taken into the unconscious with routinization or, or a sublimation, or is it something else? And the something else uh, is, is what I'm going to talk about next. And the something else is that, well, perhaps it's the other way around. And perhaps uh, we're always talking about consciousness first and then things becoming unconscious like habit formation or skill acquisition. It could be that these circuits and these, these uh, are already there and that what consciousness is doing is making use of pre-existing or already existing unconscious motivational systems. And that's how we get the same outcomes. We get the same processing stages and everything else. But they were always there in un the unconscious motivation prior to the advent of consciousness uh, in evolutionary time. Uh, and that's why we get this great similarity. And what that would predict then is you can prime infants, you can prime kids, you can prime little kids who don't have all the adult experience that is believed to be necessary to have something become automatic or unconscious. And research is definitely starting and showing this kind of thing. You can prime kids. Uh, this is a, a study where the children were made to be more helpful to others. They're 18 months old. But by showing two kids next to each other, like in the upper left, people, uh, the kids were then more helpful uh, in, in the studies that came after to other kids and to the experimenter. And compared to the condition in the lower right, uh, uh, where they're facing away from each other, they're eight, only 18 months old. These are cues to what the appropriate behavior is. They're primed, and they do the behavior just like adults. This could not be if it's only a lot of experience in adulthood that, that makes these things operate out of consciousness, out of awareness. It's a clue that this is there at birth, or this is there very early on. The structures are already there. So this is the basic argument, that these processes, these adaptive processes, had to exist before consciousness came online because we are always purposive and we had to do the right thing and to the, uh, the adaptive thing, otherwise we wouldn't have survived. Well, what was guiding our behavior in adaptive and, and, uh, and uh, uh, correct uh, ways through natural selection prior to the advent of, uh, of consciousness? Uh, you basically have to have a system that does this without consciousness, which is what we're finding, which is what we're finding with all these unconscious effects. There was a really nice system already in place and it's still in us now and still influencing us now. Um, so, and again, I made that point that this model would predict that all of these effects then would have to go on to affect behavior. Why? Because natural selection only operates on, on outward, outward behavior. It doesn't operate on what's going on in the head. You can't select for these things if there's no external expression of it. It has to be out there in behavior to be selected for. And so if these things are adaptations, they have to affect behavior. And we didn't know this when we started. It turns out that's the case. It also helps explain things like where these impulses come from. We've got a lot of interesting studies like Levesque's Time in the Mind, uh, classic study, Wagner's, Michael Gazaniga, William James. Everybody on this list has said that consciousness is not, in fact, I should add, Baumeister and Mazzacampo, last year's uh, Psych Review article, they say the same thing there. They've come to that conclusion uh, over some time. Uh, but basically, the consciousness is not for the generation of impulses of what to do. It's, it's not for that. William James also said that. Uh, it's not the source of these impulses. Consciousness is more like a gatekeeper, uh, ex allowing some through and not others. In other words, uh, uh, guarding with the expression of these impulses, but not generating the impulses. Gazaniga, Levet, and, and Wegner didn't say anything about where the impulses came from at all, but they said that these impulses are what uh, uh, happened prior to our conscious awareness of what we're doing. What we're showing is where the impulses come from. I mean, we can put priming uh, research in that context and say, here's the impulses. They're coming from the outside world. They're acting in these systems. They all lead to behavioral predispositions. Those are the impulses, and this is new. This is something that uh, has been suspected for a long time, but I think it fits in really nicely there. So the last point here, and where it leads into the <laughs> anyway, um, 
this is the research I was going to talk about, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to get to it as quickly as I thought I would, uh, is that the new processes are going to be building on, exacting on sort of a classic accrual kind of idea of, of, of evolutionary influences and natural selection, that things don't get rewired. When we, when we develop consciousness, we didn't throw everything else in our brain away. It didn't go away. You can't do that. Uh, things build on what's already there. If there's a good trick, a, a thing that works, then, then that's exacted. Then the new, the new processes or more abstract ones make use of it. So given all of that logic, this leads to the physical stuff because we're trying to argue that, um, that abstract concepts are based on early experience or, or concepts that exist very early in life. And what are those concepts that exist very early in life? And many, many people uh, have argued, Herb Clark, uh, Lakoff, uh, I think this is Coleridge, uh, Gene Mandler and Roger Shepard and others have all argued in the preverbal child the concepts are spatial because that's the information that's there. They don't have to retrieve anything from memory, which they don't know how to do yet. Uh, they don't have to do anything internally in terms of mental skills. It's all out there for them to form concepts with. Distance, spatial concepts, and also we would include physical sensations, uh, exploration through touch, through the hand, haptic, haptic influences. How the, how the little kids exploring vision and touch is, is creating concepts about the world. And they're going to be early, the early ones in. And Herb Clark says distance is the absolute first concept the infant forms in, in his sort of logical analysis of it. So a lot of people are saying this. And so this is the basis for what we're going to talk about next, uh, or if I have time. Uh, also include goals here, too, not just physical concepts, but actually uh, evolved or, or concrete pre-existing goals and motives, uh, for example, for purity, survival, reproduction, avoidance of disease, uh, that more abstract social goals are built on those pre-existing structures. And now here's the evidence for it. We've got evidence uh, coming up, uh, not from our lab, but Chen Bojang's lab at Toronto at the Rotman School. Uh, showing them the Macbeth effect, the Macbeth effect of, of, of remembering something you did uh, that was really bad uh, and then wanting to make reparations for that uh, and, and people in the control condition do and want to give money to charity more than the control group if they remember something bad they did, uh, but not if they were uh, uh, allowed to, for a bogus reason, uh, uh, use hand wipes or Purell and wash their hands uh, before the dependent measure was collected. Physically washing the hands also cleanse the guilt, also cleanse the soul. So you've got basically a physical manipulation influencing a psychological uh, state. And this is the kind of research uh, that, that we're doing too. Okay, so here we go. You've got a lot of, oh boy. Um, yeah, it, it looks good on the screen. Um, basically, the four types here, spatial, verticality, and distance. Uh, the next one, temperature. and the, Actually, the next three are not meant to be highlighted anyway. But the first one will talk about spatial, verticality, and distance. Uh, and, and these are perceptual effects, so they're operating through the perceptual system, except that maybe not the outside environment, but, but uh, the body, the body sensations are the physical, uh, are, the, are the features priming um, as influenced by the environment. And, and Thomas Schubert's uh, in, uh, research here is very, very, uh, very relevant because he shows effects of verticality uh, such that we have this metaphor. We have uh, power mapped on uh, verticality, so high, low. We talk about high status, low status. We talk about looking up to somebody or looking down on somebody. We talk about your highness. And these, these words, these metaphors are smoke. Smoke suggesting or telling us there's a fire there. The fire is we're saying these and using these physical terms for a reason. It's not just linguistic convention. Uh, it's uh, around the world, and it actually is showing this is how we are thinking. This is how... Uh, this is the relation between the physical and the, and the social. We use physical terms all the time to talk about psychological or social uh, variables. And there's a reason for that. 
Don Campbell's wonderful 1956 Psych Review article on, on uh, the evolution of vision. The evolution of vision is basically uh, is found in all these different species independently. And what, what it gains for us is distance. It gains for us safety and distance. We don't have to bump into the predator or bump into the bad thing. We can see it from a distance and we gain safety. And, and uh, obviously it's a reproductive advantage. It's a, something it's selected for and all of that. So basically you've got 80% of the brain, which is devoted to eyes and vision, uh, trying to uh, gain distance and trying to, uh, to uh, uh, maintain or to, to establish distance. Uh, and so distance is very important to the brain. You've got Kurt Lewin talking about psychological distance, emotional distance. We, all these things are, listen to the words we're using. We're talking about distance, a distant father, a close relationship. We're using these spatial terms about distance all the time to refer to these social, these social uh, effects. Uh, in the Milgram study, the closer people were physically to the victim, the less they shocked. Even when they were, unfortunately, holding the guy's hand down, still 30% of them shocked the guy all the way to the end. Uh, but at least it wasn't 63%. Um, but emotional distance, uh, we know very well. Um, John Boldy talked about this, uh, uh, very important for, um, uh, for any, for a variety of animals to keep close to the caretakers, to keep close distance to the caretakers, uh, and also to keep away from predators, since for safety and the ones who did, the little ones who did, uh, had an advantage, and they didn't want, if the ones who wandered off were the ones who uh, were helpless and uh, did not survive to reproduce. Uh, so the attachment theorist Boldy has said the same thing. Lawrence Williams and I have done several studies priming people with physical distance, so they just plot points on a Cartesian grid of uh, graph paper. And so they're plotting points either relatively close or relatively far from each other, and that's all they do, and that's one experiment fine. And then physical priming, basically. And then we have them uh, fill out or dependent measures that have to, do with, uh, have to do with emotional distance or have to do with other kinds of distance. So you get emotional distance effects. People aren't as upset by embarrassing media, not as much physiological reactions to, to terrible, horrible pictures. Uh, you get an effect in economic uh, tasks, same thing. Uh, and you also have people, if they, if they, all they did was plot the points relatively far versus relatively close, and they're significantly less likely in that condition to want to go home for the winter holidays, for Christmas, to see their family and friends. All they've done is plot these points here versus here on the graph paper. So there's, there's psychological distance now that we, that's been induced physical priming of a psychological state. Temperature, this is unfortunately, but temperature is the one that we've done the most with. with uh, we've done a, a, a coffee studies. The coffee study is basically building on uh, Solomon Ash's insights a long time ago, warm and cold being central important traits to how we think about people. Susan Piss has followed that up with lots of research uh, showing warm and cold. That dimension is, is there in stereotypes of, uh, of, of in-groups, uh, sorry, of out-groups, 100 different countries around the world. So it's very much a cross-cultural effect. Uh, it's very important how we think about people. It transforms how we think about people and so forth. Uh, and so um, Lawrence and I just asked the question. We said, why do we, why do we call this warm? I mean, uh, when you, we look at this, she says, this really comes down to a friend or foe assessment. Are you with me or against me? And so why don't we use friend or foe? I mean, why do we use warm and cold? But we do, and we always have. In fact, if you look at Ash's original stuff and you find out why he picked warm and cold, he doesn't know. He just he doesn't explain it. He just says, the, uh, why I picked these, uh, the experimenter thought these would, these would work. That's all he says. You couldn't get away with that now, but that was like a JPSP type article back then. The experimenter believed that this would work. He doesn't explain. Also, there are no other central traits. In social psychology, we're taught all the central traits, plural, but there's no other one. He doesn't give any others besides what we're told. So it's very important how we think about other people. One, and uh, you know, with Harlow's studies, just to point out, if you probably really aware of these studies for poor little monkeys, 
raised in isolation without their parents, without a caretaker, another monkey, uh, either with a wire mother or, or a cloth mother, and just to get to the to cut to the chase, we all know about the, the creature comfort, the tactile comfort that they, they, they did pretty well when they were with the mother that had the cloth compared to the wire mother. But what they don't really feature and were not taught very, very well is that there was a 100-watt light bulb behind that cloth. There was no 100-watt light bulb on the left side. So basically, the cloth was nice, but it was the warmth. And these, these poor little monkeys actually turned out to be fairly okay socially. They weren't great. But the ones with just the wire were, were just cried and huddled and shook, and shook them and, and hugged themselves pathetically in the corner. At least the ones on the right interacted and could do something and actually reproduced. And a, a, you know, not great, but they weren't like the monkeys raised with a, a monkey caretaker. But the warmth actually, in this case, substituted for the missing social warmth or the missing maternal or paternal warmth. And that's what we're doing here. Uh, Ash had uh, these words warm and cold and showed differences in impression formation. And all we did was substitute whether people briefly held a, a cup of hot coffee or iced coffee before they did the study. And just briefly, here, hold this for a second. Thank you. I'll get your papers here. Thank you very much. And they filled something out. Very incidentally, briefly, they briefly held the hot or cold coffee. And you basically, and you got the exact same effect that, that Ash did with the words warm and cold. Notice everybody in the study held the same six traits when they formed impressions. Same, same six traits for everybody. The only thing different is that they briefly touched the hot or cold copy. They were more likely to uh, then uh, give their compensation for the experiment to uh, a friend in the form of a gift certificate compared to the, the cold condition. So they're more pro-social and more generous after touching something warm versus something cold. Uh, you've got lots of other labs now showing these effects. Uh, Zhang and Ardinelli, cold and lonely. Uh, Hans Eiserman, Gun Samin have a lot of studies. Uh, and we have a neural, neural study as well. I'm going through this fairly quickly. Um, so here are all the different studies, independent variables, dependent variables, and you get basically um, effects of this uh, of social coldness on physical temperature estimation. So if you've just been excluded by a group, you think the room temperature is colder than if you've been included by the group. So you've got social coldness, social warmth affecting physical sensations of physical uh, warmth and physical coldness, and you can reverse that with a hot and cold beverage. Then you have people thinking. Uh, that other people are, are you know, friendlier and pro-social towards others. So it's a bi-directional effect. You get lots of different dependent variables in lots of different labs. Uh, Unit Kane, Jeremy Gray, uh, Peggy Clark, and myself published this last year, an imaging study showing the same part of, of the human insula reacts both to physical temperature, cold and warm, in imaging, as, it, as uh, it does to betrayals of trust and economic gain, social coldness. So you get the same regions, the same left anterior insula uh, area, connected and, uh, sorry, activated, and the two regions within the left anterior insula are connected with the gradient, and that's, uh, that's uh, Bud Craig's work, uh, which is more recent, in 2009. So it looks like the warm cold effect is even hardwired. That physical warmth creates feelings of social warmth and vice versa with, uh, with cold. Now, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll end soon, because I can, I can just roll through all of these, but I think this is where <laughs> I'm, I'm now out of time, and now I'm wanting to tell you all the fun stuff. Um, I'll just keep around. You tell me a stop of thought. Um, the, the thing is, we've known about this. Metaphors, for one thing, we use it in our language all the time. We, we, we have this, uh, you know, housewarming. What's a housewarming? It, it can happen in the summer. You don't have to warm the house in the summer physically, but it's housewarming by having everyone in the neighborhood come and greet the new people to the neighborhood. And that's called housewarming. We use these words all the time. And here's, you know, hot coffee. And I always, you know, offer people hot coffee when they come to my office. And, uh, you know, I, I'm now I'm understanding maybe why I'm doing it. But I, the, the interesting thing to me is that we've had this knowledge, and, it, and actually I think it's affecting our behavior implicitly without the explicit knowledge of the effect. 
because if we knew it already, you wouldn't get these things published. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising, these coffee studies. Uh, but it, it, the difference here is, is interesting to me. So you get this all over the place. You get it all over the world, this idea of warm, you know, warm hearts, warm smiles, something warm, meaning pro-social, meaning friendly, uh, and uh, not physically warm. We've got the Budweiser ads at Christmas time, you know, the Clivesdales are, are stomping around, and uh, at the end of the ad, uh, the door opens, and there's a warm fireplace right there at the end. Uh, now, here's where, to me, it gets even more interesting, because I was watching a documentary on hell, which is something I love to do, uh, on the History Channel, and this documentary was all talking about the nine levels of hell for Dante and uh, in gruesome, horrible detail as much as they could. Um, and here's, and I, I saw this and I couldn't believe it. Now, there were nine levels. The lower you go, the worse you were. Okay? There's nine levels. This is nine. The murderers for Dante are in level seven. This is Satan. He's in level nine. What does Satan do? What, who, what is level nine? Now, remember in Dante and the Inferno, the punishments fit the crime. Contra pasos. These are punishments, poetic, like poetic justice fits the crime. What happened in the level night? Number one, these were people who betrayed the trust of others close to them. Satan betrayed God. In Dante's Inferno, Satan is chewing on Judas Iscariot's head. So around a, a Satan in the Inferno are other people famous for betraying other people who are close to them. Social coldness. How are they punished? The only place in hell. <laughs> Talk about hell freezing over. I mean, they were frozen in ice. The punishment for Dante that fit the crime of betrayal was physical coldness in the middle of fiery hell, fire and brimstone. So I thought, hey, 1308, we knew this. We knew this enough. But more than that, it turns out there's a wonderful book, Visions of Heaven and Hell Before Dante, for people interested in what people thought hell was like. It turns out, the Apostle Peter, St. Peter, also wrote it in his Apocalypse. One line, hell has rivers of fire and of ice for the cold-hearted. That's a, basically one, that's 2,000 years ago, right? So I'm sure if you try, you might find something even earlier. But we've known this implicitly. Now, do we know it implicitly in terms of our own behavior? And here's the last thing I, I want to talk about. I mean, I, there's more, but I think I could, I could end on this one. And that is... If we know it implicitly that well, maybe we use it. Maybe we substitute ourselves, like Harlow's monkeys. You know, Harlow did for the little monkeys. Maybe we substitute ourselves physical warmth for social warmth if it's missing from our lives. That leads to certain predictions. And I'm, again, pushing the point that this is implicit, intuitive knowledge we have. It's affecting our behavior without our knowledge of why we're doing what we're doing. But it's a very big effect. So, Yadid Shalev, who's a wonderful researcher who's in Israel, uh, came, visited uh, Yale for a year, and so we did all these studies together, and they're just impressed now at emotion. Um, and uh, we asked people very simply to fill out questionnaires about um, loneliness or uh, whether they, uh, and, and things they want to do during the day. They either did the loneliness scale, you see the loneliness scale first, or they did it second, or they did the daily activities. We were uh, presented as separate studies. The daily activities uh, include how often they take baths and showers. These are Yale students to begin with and how hot they like the water temperature to be, how long they want to, how long they usually stayed under the water. And it turns out that the lonelier these students are, the more they take baths and showers. The hotter they want the water to be significantly for the baths and showers, the longer they stay under the hot water. All of these are significant. Now, before you say lonely, stinky Yale students, and who, you know, how do you generalize beyond that? 
the first thing I thought, we went, so we went out to a community sample in a town green, and so the average age of the community sample is 43 years old, and uh, these are older people in a town green. You get the same effects there. <clears throat> Not as strong, but very strong, but fairly good correlations and very significant correlations. You get the same effect in, in older people as younger people, so it goes on and on from there. So that's a demonstration that there's a relation between loneliness and heat seeking, physical heat seeking. Now you can do experiments, you know, experiments, not correlational studies. Have people touch the hot coffee or cold or cold iced coffee and then have them complete the use of the loneliness scale, which only has a range of one to four. The norm is two, and if the norm is two, that means you basically can push it up, you know, just two more points to four at most, and we almost push it halfway there. By just merely touching something cold, you increase the eusodolonia score to 2.8 from 2.0. So feelings of physical coldness are making people feel psychologically cold, and that's coming out on the, the scale that's supposed to measure the sort of chronic level of their social relationships, not the temporary how they feel at the moment. This is the best one, I think. Social inclusion exclusion. Kip Williams, lots of people have used this cyberball game, you know, that where you, you include people or you are yourself included or you are yourself excluded by the group in a ball tossing game on the computer. You can also have people remember a time in their past and they weren't picked to the you know, team on the gym uh, in, the, in the gym or the playground uh, times of whatever the rejection experience or exclusion was or an inclusion experience. It works either way. Uh, what that does in, in lots of research by, say, Kip Williams, but also uh, Park and Maynor and other people, uh, is it increases the need for affiliation. Once you've been excluded, you want to affiliate. And so if you ask people after an exclusion event, uh, how much do you want to be with your friends and, or family, you know, it's significantly more likely to want to do that after an exclusion event on Cyberball. Okay, that's their finding. What we did was we, we interposed either a warm or cold or neutral physical experience after the exclusion event, they either touched or did a product testing on one of these icy hot or you know, cold, cold uh, warm or cold packs. And then we measured the need for affiliation. And what happened was the warm physical experience, touching something warm after being excluded, removed the need for affiliation. So what's happening is the feeling of physical warmth satisfied the need for affiliation. It satisfied. It, it made it like a homeostasis mechanism. It restored feelings that this is okay. Now, I had this experience when I was like nine years old. I was on a boys' choir, believe it or not. <clears throat> at a university, at Illinois, actually, University of Illinois Boys Choir, and I was in it for a few years. We would take you know, tours around the Midwest, to Detroit and other places, and the first time we did this, they shoved us all, like four of us, and they're basically strangers, this is a choir of like 60, 60 boys, into hotel rooms, and like we, and there was like one bed, I mean, and we were like, oh, and we didn't want to, you know, do this, and we were like creeped out, and like, we don't want to, you know, like that, but we all had turns in the bathroom, you know, take showers and stuff, and I remember I was just a wreck. I didn't want to do this. It was uncomfortable. It was not pleasant and so forth. I came, I was under the hot shower, and I, it was like I felt better and better. I actually walked out. I was fine. We all were fine. We all took showers. Um, and we got along great. Pillow fights. We just messed around. It was one, we had no problem. No problem at all. Now, I, now I always have that memory. I never understood. But I thought, oh, you know, it's just relaxing. But more than that, it's not just relaxing. Um, and again, you know, we've known this, you know, again, for years, we, the elderly uh, people are moving uh, in, in uh, higher proportions in the south, like Florida, uh, and we always thought that was because of physical warmth and coldness, you know. But what's going on with older elderly people is that as the older you get, the, the more your social network shrinks, your children move away, your friends pass away, and, and uh, your social net, you're, you're, you're facing an increasing situation of social coldness. So maybe what's going on here is in part, not totally, but in part, uh, seeking physical heat to, 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 to uh, the warmth 
to uh, replace the missing social warmth in, in, in life. Um, I could end there. I'm, I can talk about these touch ones too, which are sort of cute. I can do it relatively quickly. It's up to you. I mean, I want to leave time for questions. Um, but this gets into this gets into these things like heavy man and um, hard, physical hard makes you think things are more difficult. Maybe it's time. Uh, touching something rough incidentally makes you think something was more effortful and didn't go as well as it. Uh, and the one that I like the best is uh, is, uh, is actually the hard and soft. Um, if I can get right to it. Um, so here, think about this. So hard as a concept, uh, and soft as a concept. We also talk about negotiations. We talk about taking a hard line or being soft on crime. And we have those metaphors too. And it turns out if you have people sitting on hard chairs around a table with no cushions on them, they don't negotiate, they don't compromise. If you have a, my price is 10, you offer me five, what do I say next? I could split the difference, 750. That's what people do in the soft chairs. I could say, eh, nine. And that's what people do in the hard chairs. So it's actually hard and soft affects your hard line or your being soft. We also have the effect on sentencing or crimes. And if you're sitting on soft chairs, you think that the sentence should not be as much as people who sit on hard chairs. So these effects are everywhere. They're through different sensory systems. I think I can, I can go, I, we've already talked about this. The, the one on goals is the Macbeth, that's a good example, the Macbeth effect where the goal is to, uh, is to uh, clean your, your soul or clean your conscience, and, and you can satisfy that by cleaning your hands. And here's basically the, the, main, the big effect down there in terms of whether you want to help somebody. 74% control condition, yes, 41% did dramatically different after they've uh, washed their hands, been induced to wash their hands. Essentially, essentially, what comes next, and uh, I could talk about, is mechanism. Because with these metaphor effects, if you haven't noticed, they're everywhere, and there's a new one every day, and a new cute kind of metaphor-type uh, physical priming effect every day. People now are really focusing on underlying mechanisms and what is going on here. And the, the, the message right now is that it's not just one mechanism. These are multiply determined. There's different mechanisms with different effects. Some of them are, may well be due to semantic priming. Some may be hardwired in like warm cold, uh, and distance is also. Uh, other ones might be. Macbeth, that cleansing might also be. Norbert Schwartz's recent work suggests it also might be hardware. Or very early learning. And for example, uh, the, hard, the hard one. I can see that being, in the, I can see that being not a hardwired, but it being a, um, a semantic effect. That, that uh, terms like hard have original meanings that then have new original, uh, additional meanings accruing on them as we grow older and, and learn more uh, senses of the word hard. So they, like stereotypes go beyond the information given. Here, touching or having a hard experience they also activate the other things going beyond the information given uh, about the other meanings of hard, like difficult or, or hard line. So I can see semantic priming be, being uh, uh, viable here, uh, for example. But we know that there are some that seem to be uh, hardwired, and those two are there. And for very early learning, this is also possible, too. For example, I think the verticality one is a great one for early learning because think about the little kids. Think about the, the infants and small children being so small and, and always having to look up to their caretakers for years and years and years and years through childhood. Their low power, caretakers high power. Looking up to high power is what we do for how many years of our life uh, from zero on. Um, and so it very well could be an association that came through just the, the, the physical um, reality of being a kid, of being short and small and having to look up all the time to the powerful people above. So that's also a viable mechanism that, that uh, is, is being researched. And I really think that's it. Thank you very much.
For example, with the smoking, you get this effect in need states. Like they haven't smoked for four hours. If they've just smoked, the need is off and the goal is out there and you don't get the effect there. So definitely. Uh, and I'm trying to say the difference between this and Skinner, for example, you know, the external uh, environment causing all behavior, is that Skinner did not allow those mediating internal systems. He did not allow the mechanic to open the hood and look inside the, inside the car. You had to fix the car without opening the hood. Um, we're, we're, we're allowing the mediating processes in these different systems. Without those, we would never get any effects because the, the effects are different. They have different operating characteristics for the different systems. They have different time courses, uh, different ways to affect behavior. It's not just one size fits all. And, and by any means, we never would have found that out if we hadn't understood how these different psychological, conscious, not epiphenomenal systems work. And that's how we can do what Skinner failed to do. Skinner tried to go to higher mental processes and, and behavior, and he failed. That's what caused the co one cause of the cognitive revolution, the failure of his 57 book. Because he tried to take the rat and pigeon stuff and say it affects higher mental functions like language and behavior, and it, it just it was ridiculous. It could be SR, 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 change. And this is not an SR, SR change at all. This is, uh, you know, actual mediating psychological systems. Okay, who had the question? But, yes. They're all long-term because, for example, when you make a judgment, it's fixed. I mean, these things may be fleeting at the moment, but they, the things you make and judgments you make and behaviors you put yourself to publicly have, have lives of their own afterwards. You know, if you want to be consistent, once you do something, you, you sort of are locked in that you did that and it's public. So these things do have, you know, they may be fleeting in the moment. do have long-term consequences, especially judgments and impressions. Uh, impressions have huge consequences, first impressions, of course, for their act. And I'm not sure about the rest of the question. Um, Yeah. Right. Uh, well, see, prime, it's interesting because these different kinds of priming effects last different, uh, different amounts of time. For example, the evaluation effect is gone within four seconds. It has to, because it's a within-subject design every four seconds a new trial. If it didn't go away, it'd be mush. The first would affect the second, it would just be mush. And you get very good individual, you know, within-subject. Uh, I want to uh, amplify your point about individual differences, though, because uh, people in the embodiment area are now coming uh, forward and, 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 uh, and showing that there's, I think they've already, we already knew this, uh, other people already knew this, um, there's wide individual differences in preconception, in other words, sensitivity to these states. And so the individual differences now gives an opening to some health to some health uh, possibilities, health care possibilities. So, for example, it could be that uh, there are deficits in some groups to feeling. For example, the, the, uh, it could be there's a relation between autism and, and this warm, the warmth and trust effect. It may be that we can get there, bypass the problem by using physical warmth, for example. 
uh, with the, the normal system is not working, the, the usual system is not working. Um, but individual differences here could be, um, you know, if you're not ever feeling the warmth, I mean, you're, you're, you can see where your life is going to go. It's going to be a cold life. You know, if you can't, you
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.